0: Another quack cast. This is the 130th one. It's called Irritated by the Skeptical Inquirer. Again, it always gets down to a problem that I have. There are two areas I know well medicine, specifically and in great detail, infectious diseases and scams. And people so often get them wrong. And it makes me wonder, say, in my newspaper. When they write about medicine and they get it wrong, how can I trust the rest of my newspaper? If they can't get an area I know something about correct, can I trust them in an area of which I know nothing? So anyway, I have this confession. I have been interested in issues skeptical since high school, when I came across a copy of The Zetetic at Powell's Bookstore. In the pre-digital era, I had a complete library of zetetic and skeptical inquirers that a decade ago I tossed in the recycle bin, along with a similar collection of Macworlds. I have been interested in skepticism a long time, and here is my confession. I no longer find much of the subject matter covered by skeptical inquirer all that interesting. Even the big-ticket topics, like the existence of God, are kind of uninteresting anymore. It is not that the topics are not important. They are important. For each generation has to relearn why Bigfoot or haunted houses or UFOs are nonsense. But for me, it is a large serving of been there, done that. So while I subscribe to SI, Skeptical Inquirer, it is more from a sense of obligation to support institutions I think are important than from an expectation that I will be either educated by the content or entertained by the style of the writers. I usually skim the magazine while accomplishing tasks that do not require my full attention, i.e. the bathroom, probably because SI is the only magazine I still receive in dead tree format, the rest of my life being digital. So while taking my ablutions, I ran across Taking Our Medicine, What Hope for Skepticism in Healthcare, by Kenneth Krauss. And after skimming it, I was irritated. So I read it again, and I was more irritated, which is often a good sign. But I could not quite put a finger on what it was that irritated me. So I read it a third time, and then I went for a walk and thought about it. The facts of the article are fine. I had no issue with the content. It was the adjectives that irritated me and the essay was, from my perspective, incomplete. It was like reading a birth control relationship article by the Pope. Sure, he knows the facts of the situation, but not being an active participant in the process and with an agenda to promote, vital information will be missing or distorted. Regular listeners to the podcast know my background. For the last 24 years, I have spent most of my waking time taking care of inpatient infectious disease patients in Portland, Oregon. My hospitals are not-for-profit, and several are teaching hospitals. And as Chair of Infection Control, I have been involved in many of the quality and safety initiatives in my hospitals. I have somehow gone from the young whippersnapper to one of the old geezers at my hospital, and I am one of the few who have institutional memory as to what happened in the healthcare over the last quarter century. For those of you who want some science-based medicine with links and references, I think this podcast is going to come up short. This is a reflection about what it means to be a physician and how it may impact patient care. It is based on me and my experiences and my observations. It is probably not applicable outside the walls of my hospital and perhaps the walls of my skull. Just today I was talking with a colleague who travels widely as part of her job and she was contrasting the culture of the East Coast and the West Coast medicine And noted that in Portland we have a distinct shortage of ABHDs, arrogant butthead doctors, and that the academic docs in, city whose name I will not reproduce, because I do not want her to even remotely be at risk for getting in trouble, are a vicious bunch of backstabbers. So, your mileage may vary. The basic thesis of the essay is probably summed up by the following quotes. The so-called medical science and the American healthcare, in particular, prospers best in a self-serving culture of secrecy, arrogance, and denial. End of quote. And medical overuse is a money-hungry green monster, says healthcare experts Rosemary Gibson and Janardan Singh. It not only thrives on the fact that too little scientific evidence exist to justify a great deal of today's medical practice, it also wants to prevent good science from informing policymakers and the public about what really works, In quotes. The author characterizes patients as, quote, easy marks, end of quote, evidently about to be swindled by common and expensive overuse of the medical-industrial complex. Evidently, doctors and hospitals are conspiring to give everyone unneeded expensive care. There is no shortage of perverse rules and regulations with unintended adverse consequences in medicine. The biggest change I have seen in healthcare revolves around length of stay. In the old days a patient would be admitted, you would do a history and physical and generate a differential diagnosis, a list of processes that could cause the patient's symptoms. The patient has say fever of unknown origin, FUO, a notoriously difficult diagnostic problem. In the old days, the definition of F.U.O. was a fever that persisted, get this, after 14 days of evaluation in the hospital. 14 days in the hospital. Wow. And I was always amused that Madeline was evidently admitted a month for a simple appendix removal. But I digress. Then you would order tests for the more likely causes, wait for the tests to come back, evaluate them, then do the next tier of tests methodically working through the possibilities, sometimes actually taking several weeks to reach a diagnosis. These days, with length of stay an important driver of cost and reimbursement, when a patient is admitted, often all possible diagnostic tests are ordered at once, regardless of how likely a positive result will be. It drives me nuts. But in an era of short hospital stays, It is better to do everything all at once and see what the final diagnosis is than to stretch it out. It is one of the changes that certainly drives increased testing. This is one example of many where rule changes in payment or care have had unintended adverse consequences for diagnostic testing. As I always say, no good deed ever goes unpunished. The article makes doctors and hospitals all sound like greedy dirt balls out to scam our patients, and he gives numerous examples of the overuse of medical care and its consequences, all driven by the need to make money. And I will reiterate, all his examples are true, but incomplete. Everybody wants to make money. Everybody. Even infectious disease doctors. Hospitals are expensive. The payroll, infrastructure, and utilities are expensive. My hospitals spend millions a year in free care on the un and underinsured. And there are some doctors and institutions that are driven primarily by the need to make money, but making money does not appear to be the primary driver for testing at the institutions in which I work. Medicine has a lot of uncertainty in diagnosis and treatment. I've been at it for 30 years, and it does not get any easier with time. You just get more comfortable with your limitations. I wonder how much increased medical utilization revolves around the more fundamental concepts of responsibility and accountability. Because when I see a patient, I am responsible for making the right diagnosis and giving the right treatment, and often there is a lot of uncertainty with both. And if I am wrong, people can suffer and they can die. Even if I am correct, the decisions I can make it can result in harm or financial ruin. I have sent many people into bankruptcy, treating their infections when they were uninsured. It is often our responsibility and accountability to our patients that can drive medical testing. After my father retired from a career as a cardiologist, I noticed he became more alert and active, And I commented it must be nice to be rested after a lifetime of nighttime calls. He said it wasn't the calls that ruined his sleep, although he received enough of them. But it was the worry that kept him awake. The worry that his patients would do poorly. The worry that he was doing all he could to make them better. The worry that he was right or wrong and the consequences that that could entail. I understand that worry. Bedtime is often the time I perseverate about patients and to worry, and to fret about them, often to the detriment of a good night's sleep, although I have a very good understanding of the pattern in the wood in the ceiling above my bed. Early in my career, I admitted a patient Friday afternoon with fevers for two weeks, a new aortic insufficiency murmur, and conjunctival hemorrhages. Endocarditis, a heart valve infection, I thought. Get blood cultures, start antibiotics, And I didn't think I needed to call the tech in for a weekend echocardiogram. It would be extra cost, and he had the classic triad of endocarditis. Now, aortic valve endocarditis is a dangerous disease that can decompensate quickly, but the patient had no signs or symptoms of valve failure, so there's no need to echo the patient as an indication for surgery. And I left for the weekend. When I get back from the weekend, the blood cultures are still negative. And I was puzzled. They should be growing something by now, so I ordered an echo, and the patient did not have endocarditis. Instead, there was a dissecting ascending aortic aneurysm, a very rare mimic of endocarditis. I had not seen one before, and I have not seen one since. But I had sat on a dissecting aneurysm for 72 hours. I do not know what is the worst thing that can happen in your job. In mine, it is that through error, of omission or commission, that I could injure or kill someone. You cannot imagine the sense of mortification I felt that I had missed a diagnosis that could have easily have killed the patient that weekend. He was repaired and did quite well, but to this day I cringe when I think about the case. It's not for medical legal reasons. I really do not give a rat's ass about being sued. I do the best I can for my patients. I care about not hurting people. I care about making them better. And the more certain I am with my diagnosis, the more likely I am not to miss an unexpected diagnosis, and the more likely I will give the appropriate therapy. And that is nothing compared to the feeling when you discover that a patient who you thought was doing well has taken a turn for the worse. A couple years ago I had a patient with malaria who was admitted on Thursday, and by Friday I thought the patient was doing well. The smear had an increased number of malaria parasites, but clinically the patient was improving. But when I returned on Monday, the patient was on a ventilator and ECMO, almost dying from severe malaria. Now, I did nothing wrong, mind you. It was the natural history of the disease. You can do everything right and still have a bad outcome. But that horrible sinking feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach when you get a patient who is suddenly doing poorly Is something everybody wants to avoid. It is horrible when a patient does badly because I'm responsible. I'm accountable to the patient, even if I do nothing wrong. And that in turn is nothing compared to the feeling when a patient dies. Jesus, even if you do everything right, death is awful. The horrible, sinking feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach is magnified, manyfold. I am responsible and accountable for my patient, and death is a failure of that responsibility. As a recent other blog entry noted, quote, Of course, the young surgeon said with complete sincerity, everything is my responsibility, end of quote. And that responsibility has consequences, the most important of which is, quote, when a person trusts you with his life, the buck stops with you, end of quote. I want to maximize the chance that my diagnosis is correct, since the consequence of being wrong can be horrible. It is a difficult calculus as to how much uncertainty about the diagnosis is reasonable. How many tests do you need to maximize diagnostic certainty? A lot of tests do get ordered to increase certainty. You need the right diagnosis to embark upon the right therapy. And there is also the worry that the patient has an unlikely process that if missed could be catastrophic. If you think a patient could have a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot to the lung, you will probably order a CT even if it is low probability because if the patient does have a PE and you miss it, they could die. And as a corollary, you remember those surprise diagnoses of the past, the ones that you didn't expect that were revealed by a CT or an MRI. Sometimes testing yields unexpected and important pathology, and those cases often have an excessive effect on future diagnostic testing in patients. And even though we all know that incidentalomas, as we call unexpected findings, can lead to complications from further diagnostic testing, we still like to find things and make patients better in medicine. And unfortunately, part of diagnostic utilization is due to ghosts of failures past. If you have ever missed an unusual diagnosis on a prior patient, you will remember it far more than your successes. And if a similar clinical situation arises, or even one that is close you are likely to order the test even if the diagnosis is unlikely. Nobody wants to make the same mistakes twice. It is a difficult road to walk. You want an accurate diagnosis. You know that everything you do can cause harm. You do not want to miss a catastrophic diagnosis, and you do not want to repeat past mistakes. And this is in the context of initial uncertainty as to whatever's going on in the patient. And above all, Here's a surprise. I want to help people get better. I doubt most people reading this will believe it, but what drives most of us in medicine is the urge to make our patients better. I want to relieve their suffering, to cure their infection, to improve their health, and get them back to their life. Unfortunately, the medical literature is often not as clear cut as I would like it to be as to what to do for patients. It is a constant problem applying the literature to a specific patient who may not match the profile of the patients in a given study. You have to do the best with what you have, and above all, you have to try and do the best for your patients. Arrogant is an interesting term for physicians. It has certainly been used to describe me. The interwebs say it is, quote, having or revealing an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities, end of quote. It's a curious adjective, I am expert in my specialty, and few in the United States have my knowledge base or my experience. There are about 8,000 ID docs and 660,000 physicians in the U.S. that have a population of 314 million people. With the exception of those ID docs who have been at it longer than me, it is safe to say I know more infectious disease than most doctors and everyone else in the United States. If you are admitted to the hospital with an infectious disease problem, There is no way you will ever be able to gather the knowledge required to make an independent decision about your diagnosis and therapy. I find it odd how the expertise of physicians is denigrated. I do not see with engineers. If drivers were more involved with bridge building, we would have better bridges. Or pilots. Flights would be on time if more passengers were involved with flying the plane. Although I suspect there are more jailhouse lawyers than there are Erzatz physicians. As an even more difficult problem in healthcare is health literacy, which is the ability to read, understand, and act on healthcare information, and depending on the demographic, affects half of Americans. We have a physician in our system with an interest in health literacy who has been a champion for improving and simplifying the material provided by the hospital. As an example, we are rewriting all our material so it is at a sixth grade reading level, the U.S. average. As Dr. Brager likes to point out in his lectures, half of patients do not have the wherewithal to understand medical care, and, quote, 40 to 80 percent of medical information is forgotten upon leaving the provider's office or facility, and nearly half the information retained is incorrect, end of quote. What we really need, of course, is a better class of patients and physicians, where all the patients are strong, all the doctors are good-looking, and all the health care is above average. But we are stuck with the time being with humans, with all their flaws. While most would like their physicians to be an unholy blend of Marcus Welby, a Boy Scout, and God, the reality is, well, doctors are just this guy, you know? It would be nice for patients to aggressively represent their own interests, but most cannot, especially when they are ill. Probably half the patients I see in follow-up do not remember having seen me in the hospital because of medications and stress and sleeplessness and other factors. Or, perhaps my bedside manner just sucks. For good or ill, given the complexity of medicine and the limitations of many patients, it is my responsibility as your doctor to be your advocate and to strive to make the right diagnosis, start the right therapy, and get you better. The most patients can get is a Reader's Digest understanding of their disease. The characterization of medicine is filled with money-grubbing bastards who provide unneeded and dangerous care-for-profit is true, but narrowly true, one small aspect of health care and of all human endeavors, except, of course, journalism and law, but not all of health care. Taking Our Medicine was at its core the kind of essay I would have expected from the health ranger or Dr. Mercola, although it did not reach the levels of nonsense of food babe and understanding, my current standard for the ultimate in health illiteracy. Taking our medicine has a familiar construction I often find in the scam world. I see similar articles every day. It is the first time in my faulty memory to find a Mike Adams-style essay in the skeptical world. These essays have the following pattern. First, they present facts, but make sure they are without nuance or context. Mention the deaths from healthcare, but conveniently fail to mention the responses. The Institute for Healthcare's Improvement's 100,000 Lives campaign, which in 2006 claimed to have prevented an estimated 124,000 deaths in a period of 18 months through patient safety initiatives in over 3,000 hospitals. Or the 5 Million Lives campaign, or any number of quality improvement initiatives that have occupied my time and improved patient care. The amount of work we have done to decrease complications in my institution has been prodigious. We have applied, to use Mr. Krause's quoted phrase without his intended irony from the quotes, medical science, to patient care, and in our system, we estimate we have prevented over 2,000 infections and prevented 200 deaths or more since 2006. Mentioning medical complications without noting the response to those deaths is a sure sign the author is a disciple of Andrew Lang. As is, I suppose, putting doctor in quotes, as he does in the essay. It's probably the equivalent of calling me mister instead of Mark or doctor or Chryslip or hey you. In the blog comments, calling one of us mister is probably 100% sensitive and specific that the writer is a wackaloon, especially if they're addressing Harriet or Jan. Second, they use inflammatory adjectives and phrases that cast your protagonist in the worst light possible. Self-serving, secrecy, arrogant, denial, money-hungry, green monster, highly caffeinated, gleefully selling anything, easy marks, misplaced trust, lucrative, cozy economic relationship, forsake journalistic integrity, No, not the author of Skeptical Inquirer, a different forsaker, dysfunctional, left in the dark, etc. Third, they make sure there is an aura of conspiracy. Doctors and hospitals are monolithic institutions that are working to prevent you, the consumer, from knowing the truth so that they can bilk you out of your hard-earned money, harming you in the process. Fourth, Make sure that your protagonists are represented as totally evil and without redemption. Never mention the good they do. And you know, we probably killed Kenny as well. And finally, have a simple yet all-encompassing solution. Explanations exist. They have existed for all time. And there is always a well-known solution to every human problem. Neat, plausible, and wrong. H.L. Mencken. Mencken or Twain? as America's Best Writer Ever, discuss. Kevin Trudeau may be heading to jail, but the spirit of his oeuvre lives on in the Skeptical Inquirer. Or maybe not. Perhaps I am a gullible, biased, and naive, an apologist for the medical-industrial complex. It is probably my ongoing confirmation bias, but the only two articles I can remember concerning real medicine in Skeptical Inquirer are this one and the Spectre article, and they were both, shall we say, suboptimal. At least when SI has an article about scam, they have authors who know about the topics. I'm not so sure it applies to real medicine. Again, every problem with medicine noted by Mr. Krauss is true, and I could come up with many more. Medicine in the U.S. is a mess in many ways, and I, for one, do not have good answers, short of making me the all-powerful emperor of healthcare. Medicine is an incredible profession. At the end of the day, I can look in the mirror and know that I have made someone's life better. I have relieved suffering, cured a serious illness, prevented an early death, decreased morbidity, made a diagnosis missed by another, eased anxiety. In my job, I make the world materially a little bit better every day through the practice of good, science-based medicine. I am also the opinion that being a doctor is more than being a, quote, human being providing a competitive service, end quote. It's odd as a lifelong skeptic and atheist to consider medicine a higher calling, with obligation and responsibilities for service to my patients that transcend a technical financial relationship. But I do. It is why I have patients, never clients, never customers. It is an old-school attitude that I do not always live up to, but I try, and it marks me as one of the anachronistic dinosaurs. Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor with all the intangible responsibilities that accompany that job. I find the job impossibly complicated, filled with uncertainty, and I never, ever seem to have enough knowledge. But if I am lucky and careful, I can get through the day without complications or bankrupting my patients. But I do start every day with a gleeful anticipation of the challenge, the responsibility, And the fun that I know is to come and finish each day satisfied that I did my best for my patients with the tools at my disposal. Despite the many flaws, there is no better job or more noble profession. And Mr. Krauss has no understanding of what it is to be in medicine.